0: listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning once again. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1st Peter. 1st Peter in your New Testament. Look for, you know, the big book Hebrews in your New Testament then go two books to the right. So you're going Hebrews James 1 Peter, Hebrews James 1 Peter, and what we've been doing for the last several weeks is one thing we really like to do here at Whitefields is we like to go through books of the Bible consecutively. So we'll go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible, and so it's kind of like playing golf, right? Like we, we hit the ball, and then the next week we pick up where, where we left off, right? And so that's what we're doing. This week we're going to be picking up in First Peter, and we're going to begin our study this morning by reading some of the verses, not all the verses that we're going to cover, but we'll begin by reading the the first few verses that we're going to look at, and then we'll jump into our study. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him since therefore christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of god this is god's word Let's pray Lord we thank you for your word, and as we read it this morning, as we consider it Lord, we come to you with open hearts and open minds asking you to speak to us, asking you to guide us and direct us into your will for our lives Lord, we know that there are things that you want to speak to us through this passage that you want to uh, speak into our lives and Lord, we want to be receptive to your word so We pray, Lord, that we would be receptive, that you would speak, that we would hear it, and we would put it into practice in our lives, and you would do your transforming work in us as we consider your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever been in a situation that wasn't very much fun? I'm sure all of us have, right? Maybe you were in a job that was uh, that you hated, or maybe you were, uh, you know, in a toxic work environment that you just wanted to get out of, or maybe it was a living situation that you were in that was awful, right, and you didn't like it, and it was awkward or uncomfortable. And our tendency, whenever we're in a situation that's uncomfortable or that we don't enjoy, is, of course, that we want to get out of that situation. You know, I was thinking about myself this this week, like, what are some situations I've been in that have been Absolutely awkward and horrible, and I think, well, what did I do? I I got out of them. But the thing is, this Peter wrote this letter to people who were living in the Roman Empire as Christians, and they were experiencing very difficult circumstances in the Roman Empire at this time. This was the time of the great persecution at the time of Caesar Nero. To be a Christian at this time was incredibly dangerous, incredibly difficult. It would mean that people might break into your house and plunder your house, drag off your family, drag you off. It might have meant uh, you know torture, even death, many times. And for these people, there were only two ways to get out of this difficult situation and circumstance. Two ways. One is to stop being a Christian, and the other one was to die. So you could either stop being Christian or die. That's the only way out of this situation. So Peter's writing to people in this difficult situation that they really can't get out of without denying Jesus or dying, right? And he wants to write them for a couple reasons. One reason is to say, hey, don't try to get out of this by giving up on Jesus, right? Don't give up on Jesus in the midst of this. He writes and says, hey, look, guys, think about this. This life is really short and eternity is really long. And the promise of the gospel is that because of what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection, if you put your trust in him and what he did for you, if your faith is in him and in that gospel, that good news, then you have the hope and the promise of eternal life. And these momentary sufferings that you're enduring are not even worth comparing to the glory which is going to be revealed to you in eternity. And so he tells them, don't give up on Jesus. But here's what's so interesting. The main thrust of Peter's message is not, hey guys, just hang on just a little longer because soon enough, you know, you'll get lucky and somebody will kill you, you know, and you'll, you'll die and you'll be able to get the heck out of this nasty old earth and you'll get to go to heaven. You might think that that would be his his message to them, right? I mean, here they are suffering. You might think, hey, soon enough, we'll get out of this terrible old world and then we can go to heaven. It's terrible old world. Remember the terrible old world that Jesus died for to save. And that's what Peter's letter is all about. He doesn't just tell them, you know, hold out the carrot of eternal life and say, guys, hang on just a little longer and then maybe you'll get lucky and die and go to heaven. No, he says this. He says, guys, you're suffering right now, but I'm writing to you to tell you how to live this life right now, here and now, because of the hope that you have in heaven. I want your hope to be in heaven, but I want your feet to be firmly here on earth. And Peter's encouraging us and them at that time, but also us, right, at our time, to be sojourners, to view ourselves as sojourners. In other words, this world is not our home. Our ultimate hope is not in this world, it's in heaven. And one day, God will bring us home. But until that day comes, God has a life for you to live. He has a purpose with you here in this world. In other words, you're not just a sojourner. You are a sojourner on a mission. You are a sojourner on assignment. The reason why God has left you here for this time is because he has a purpose with your life. And therefore, your posture towards this world is not to be one of a, a tourist, right? Tourists are disengaged with the places they visit, right? They don't put down roots. They don't get involved because they know that on Thursday they're gonna go to the airport and fly back home. Nor are you to view this world as if your posture is that of a prisoner of war, right? Captive and just waiting to get out. No, our posture in this world as foreigners and as sojourners is to be that of missionaries. Missionaries. It's not our home, but we're here on a mission. In other words, Peter is telling us this. Jesus didn't only come to save us from certain things. Jesus also came to save us for certain things. You know that, right? He didn't only come to save us from some things. He came to save us for things. He didn't only come to save us from our sins and from hell and from this broken world. He also came to save us for a purpose, for a mission, for his glory. See, the reason Jesus came wasn't just to save you from Nero, and from persecution, and from sickness, and from your problems that you're facing right now. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. See, Jesus didn't only come to save you from things. He also came to save you for greater things. See, he came to save you for a relationship with God. He came to save you for the sake of others. He came to save you for those people whom he wants to bless and speak to and reach and build up through you you could put it this way what is christianity all about right what is it what is it really all about at the end of the day you know what is this salvation that jesus gave us what is it really about is it just the promise that if we pray a prayer or we give a nod to god so to say right that we can punch our ticket to heaven and not go to hell when we die i mean certainly that's part of it but is that all it is what peter is telling us here in first peter is that christianity is more than that and it's something much better than that. To be a Christian is to receive a whole new life. It's to receive the life of the resurrected Jesus in you and to live that life out through you. See, and, and so to these people in the midst of great difficulty and to us in the midst of the difficulties that we face, Peter is here to show us that what we need is is not just an escape from this life. What we need is a whole new life altogether. And that's what Jesus came to give us. And you could call that, if we were gonna give it a name, I like to call it the resurrected life. The resurrected life. And here in this section, Peter talks to us about this resurrected life and what it's about. And here's what he says, three things that we're gonna look at in in this text. Number one, the resurrected life begins with salvation. Number two, the resurrected life requires death. And number three, the resurrected life leads to joy now and glory later. Okay, let's look at the first one of those. The resurrected life begins with salvation. In verses 18 through 22 of chapter three, the end of chapter three, Peter talks about what Jesus did to save us and what he saved us from. And he says in verse 18 that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. In other words, Jesus saved us from judgment and he saved us to a relationship with the Father. And he did that by becoming one of us and dying in the flesh to take the judgment that we deserved for our actions and for our sins. And by doing that, through his death, he removed the barrier that stood between us and God. But let me ask you this. So historians all agree, right, that Jesus Of Nazareth was a real person who lived some 2,000 years ago in Israel. Nobody doubts that. No legitimate historian questions that. Furthermore, they all agree that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was put to death on a Roman cross by the Jews and the Romans working together because this man, Jesus, claimed to be both God and King, which of course did not appeal to those people. So, in other words, we know that Jesus existed we know that Jesus died. The question is this, how do we know that his death actually accomplished what the Bible says it accomplished, right? Because lots of people die. He wasn't the only person who's ever been crucified. How do we know that his death actually accomplished what the Bible says it accomplished? Well, well, think about it like this. Imagine one evening, you're at your house, One of your friends comes over to visit you and see you at your house or your apartment. They knock on the door, you let them in. But inside your house or your apartment, it's completely dark inside. There's no lights on. And your friend asks you, hey, why don't you turn on the lights? And you say, well, because the electric company shut off my electricity because I haven't been paying my bill, right? Like I, I can't afford it. And then, you know, I didn't pay it for a couple months and I got all these fees and fines and stuff. And I, I racked up all this interest on it. So I, I don't think I'm ever gonna be able to pay this thing off. And so your friend says to you, well, hang on a second. I'm gonna go down right now to the office, the electric company office, and I'm going to find out how much you owe and I'm going to see, I don't know, you know how much it is, I don't know if I can afford it, but if I can, then I'm going to pay off your debt. And so your friend disappears and about half an hour later, your lights come on. How do you know that your friend succeeded? in this mission to pay your debt and get your electricity penalty paid? Well, you know, because your lights came on. That's the indicator that uh, it worked. Think about this. If you went back in a time machine, back to the old days when if you fell into debt, you didn't file for bankruptcy. What they did is they actually put you in a debtor's prison, which was a super bad place to be, right? Nobody wants to be in debtor's prison because in debtor's prison, you can't get out until you pay your debt but you can't make money to pay your debt because you're in prison, so you can't get a job, right? It actually made debtor's prisons illegal in most of the world for this very reason. But in the old days, this is how it was. If you fell into debt, you couldn't pay it off. You go to debtor's prison. So let's imagine, you're in debtor's prison. You owe some amount of money to somebody. One of your friends walks by, notices that you're in jail and says, hey, why are you in jail? You say, well, because I owe some money to this guy and I, I can't pay it off. And they say, well, look, I'm gonna go talk to that guy and I'm gonna go see you know, how much it is and if I can pay it off. So he goes away and you don't know is he gonna be able to do it or not. But 15 minutes later, somebody comes and they unlock the prison door and they tell you that you're free to go. So how do you know if your friend was successful In paying off your debt. Well, here's how you know. Because the penalty was canceled. That's how you know. Because the penalty was canceled. Because the prison door was opened, because the lights came on, you know that your debt must have been paid in the same way. How do we know that Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, actually worked? How do we know that it does what it says here in verse 18? That it took away our sins and brought us to God. How do we know that it worked? Here's how. Because of the resurrection of the resurrection. Peter ties that in here in these verses, the resurrection. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was like the lights coming on. It was like the prison door being opened. It was the proof that Jesus succeeded in his mission to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross and bring us to God. How do we know that? Here's how, because death is a penalty. The Bible tells us that, right? The wages of sin, the penalty for sin is death. So death is a penalty. It's not something natural. It's not something that was part of our original creation. It's a penalty. So like the lights turning back on or the prison door being opened, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the proof that he succeeded in paying the penalty for our sins because the penalty was removed. That's why when Peter talks about our salvation, he doesn't only talk about Jesus' death on our behalf, he also talks about Jesus' resurrection. But here's what's really important to see. So Jesus died and he resurrected, but here's what I don't want you to miss is the whole thrust of what we're talking about today. Peter wants us to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection are not merely historical events. They are, but they're not merely historical events. They are also a present reality. They are a present reality that takes place in your life when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus died and resurrected, to become a Christian is the end of one life and the beginning of a new life. See, Paul the apostle talked about this. He put it this way. He, he talks about it a lot, actually. Here's, here's a couple things he said. He said this in Galatians 3.20. He said, I have been crucified together with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you know what the biggest picture we have of that is? That Peter even talks about here. It's baptism. Baptism is a picture of you experiencing death and resurrection. And again, Paul talks about that too in Romans chapter 6. Let me just read to you. He says this in Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized were baptized into Christ Jesus, and we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father— we too might walk in newness of life. You know the word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means immersion. So it literally means immersion, right? Baptizo. And so this baptism is a picture, right? As a person is immersed in the waters of baptism, it's a picture of them being laid to death, right? Being buried under the water, being put under the water. And as they're lifted out of the water, it's a symbol or a sign of new life, new life. In other words, Christianity isn't uh, just about getting a ticket to heaven or a ticket out of hell. It's something much better than that. something much bigger than that. It's about receiving a new life, the life of Jesus in you. And that's why Peter, in this section, he ties it into baptism. He talks about the resurrection, about baptism. But here's the thing. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but he does it in kind of a pretty weird way, right? Like these are, these are some pretty strange verses. And uh, he says it in a way, these verses can be a little bit confusing. And I think they need some explanation. Martin Luther uh, called this passage the most wonderful obscure passage in the Bible. The most wonderful obscure passage in the Bible. In other words, uh, this passage is a little bit odd, weird, strange, different. But when you understand what Peter's saying through it, It's absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Okay? So, starting in verse 18, Peter says this He says, Jesus went in the spirit and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. See, this is what happens when you teach through the Bible verse by verse, right? You have to talk about these verses that people generally avoid. So that's what we're doing right now. Here's what Martin Luther said. Uh, You know, Martin Luther, great theologian, great reformer, great Bible teacher and Bible commentator, wrote commentaries on many of the books of the Bible. He wrote a commentary on 1 Peter. Here's what he had to say about this passage. A wonderful text it is, and a more obscure passage than anywhere else in the Bible. Therefore, I do not know for certainty what Peter means at all. Martin Luther, the great theologian, looked at this text and said, pass. I don't know. I have no idea what the heck this guy's talking about. I'm just going to move on, right? Like he didn't even try. But thankfully, uh, there are other people throughout history who have looked at this and they, they do know what, you know, try to figure out what it means. Historically, Christians have looked at this passage and understood it as referring to something that Jesus did after his death on the cross and before his resurrection on the third day. So uh, during that time, it seems that Jesus's spirit went to Sheol, which is the dwelling place of the dead. And I'll explain that in a second. But by the way, maybe you have noticed that in the Apostles' Creed, which is, by the way, the the oldest kind of continuous creed that Christians use, dating all the way back to the fourth century, right, the 300s AD, one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed says, Jesus descended into hell before he was resurrected on the third day. Um, Now, that's been kind of amended more recently, where they've changed it to say, he ascended, or sorry, he descended to the dead rather than to hell. And that's actually a little bit more accurate biblically, and I'll explain why in a second. But this is something that is also talked about in other places in the Bible. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that Jesus, who ascended into heaven, first descended into the depths of the earth. And so what this means is that in between Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day, what did Jesus do? Well, it says that in his spirit, right, he descended into Sheol and in the spirit he proclaimed something to the spirits of the deceased. So what, what was it that he proclaimed? Well, First, before we answer that, take a look at another verse in this same passage, which is why I tried to group these verses together. So look down with me to chapter four, verse six, chapter four, verse six, which says this. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, so what is that about? Well, there's a helpful little story in Luke chapter 16 that Jesus tells us. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man and Lazarus, check it out. The story... Unlike some of the Jesus' other stories, this story doesn't seem to be a parable. It actually seems to be a story about two actual people who lived and died. And Jesus is kind of giving us the behind the scenes look, right? Like God's view, stuff only God knows behind the scenes about what happened with these people when they died. So it says that both men's souls went to Sheol. Now Sheol is the dwelling place of the dead. It's where spirits go to wait. And I'll explain that in a second. But Sheol is a place, basically, understand this. It's the place where all people's spirits went when they died. So Sheol, for example, in the Psalms, David talks about how when he dies, his spirit will go to Sheol. Okay, so Sheol, though, is divided into two parts, or at least it was Up until this time. So Sheol was divided into two parts. One of those places was a place of comfort for those who died in faith called Abraham's bosom, the other part was a place of torment called Hades or hell. Now, both of these places in Sheol were essentially waiting rooms, right? They were waiting rooms where the souls of the dead awaited the final judgment, some in torment and some in comfort, depending how they had responded to God during their lives on earth. And the other thing Jesus tells us in Luke 16 that's really key is this, that it was impossible for souls to cross over, from one part of Sheol to the other. It's impossible to cross over. And so when Jesus died, here's here's how we put this all together. It seems that his spirit went to Sheol and he proclaimed the news of what he had accomplished and done in his life and in his death on the cross, right? Atoning for sin to bring redemption. And for those who had died in faith, right, who were in Abraham's bosom part of Sheol, who had humbled themselves during their lives before God and cast themselves on his mercy and asked for his grace, we call these people the Old Testament saints, right? These are the people like, Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Ruth, right, and David, they, they weren't able to go to heaven when they died. Why? Because their sins had not yet been atoned for, because Jesus had not yet come, the Savior had not yet come to do that work. So they went to Sheol, to this division in Sheol called Abraham's bosom, not heaven, but a waiting place in Sheol. And when Jesus announced to all of Sheol what he had done and what he had accomplished through his life and his death, those souls that were kept in Abraham's bosom were released to go and be with God in his presence, right? That's what chapter four, verse six is talking about. So people ask, well, well, so if I die today and I, my faith is in the gospel, my trust in the gospel, will I go to be with God? The answer is yes, your spirit will go to be with God. And then one day there will be a resurrection. We will have bodies after the judgment, right? So it's a whole timeline here. But here's the other part. Those who were in the Hades part of Sheol, when Jesus made this proclamation or this announcement, He mentions, for example, those who died in the times of Noah when God waited patiently. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 that during the time of Noah, while he was building the ark, he wasn't just building quietly, but he was actually preaching that whole time, preaching a message of repentance, calling people to turn from their sins and be saved from the judgment to come. And yet nobody responded except for his immediate family. And so for those who were in Hades when Jesus made this proclamation of what he had accomplished for them, it wasn't a message of redemption and hope, but for them, it was the message that their fate was sealed. So before we go on, though, uh, let me just take this opportunity to say this. Jesus talked more about hell and judgment than he talked about heaven. Do you know that? Why? Well, because it was Jesus was an angry guy who wanted to threaten people and make them feel bad? Absolutely not, just the opposite. It was because Jesus cared. It was, it was not a threat, it was a heartfelt plea. I set before you life and death, choose life, right? Heaven and hell are real places. Don't go to hell, right? Go to heaven, I want you to receive this grace. Jesus' heartfelt plea, you see him looking over the city of Jerusalem and weeping, right? Why? Because he cares, he loves. And that's why he talks about this, he says, don't mess around with this. Life and death are in the balances. Choose life. And guys, I know I just told you about Sean, right? He just had a physical. Do you know that? Sean Gilliam, he had a physical last week. He's in perfect health. And then Friday morning, almost dies. Totally unexpected. And guys, that's the truth. None of us know. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. If for some reason you have been putting this off, right, giving your life to Jesus and and making a decision and putting down your yes and trusting in him and following him, if you're thinking, oh, I can wait, you know, someday, yeah, I'll do that. I'll get around to it. But there's some other things I wanna do first. I don't want, you know, doing that to cramp my style right now. Guys, I just wanna say, there's no promise of tomorrow. If God's calling you today, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. It's time to step across that line and put down your yes and give your life to Jesus. See, in the story that Jesus told, here's what's so interesting. This man who went to hell his greatest wish, he said, he, he begs, right? Let me go back and speak to my family and I'll tell them not to make the mistake that I did. I'll tell them to heed God's word and give their lives over to him. He wanted so badly to go back and speak to his family and tell them, give your lives over to the Lord, receive his mercy, cast yourself upon his grace and forgiveness. He freely offers it. But what's so tragic in that story in Luke 16 is that the man is told, sorry, sorry. You can't, you can't go back. And here's what they also tell them. They said, your loved ones, they have the scriptures. Let them listen to them. Maybe some of you here today are listening to this. You are those loved ones. You're those loved ones in and, and that story. And I just wanna tell you this, you have the scriptures. Will you listen to them? Will you listen to them? Others of you, right? This story about the reality of eternity and heaven and hell and the finality of it all, You know what it needs to do? It needs to motivate you to all the more to go out and carry that message of the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations, the love of God, the grace of God. You're a sojourner in this world, but you are a sojourner on a mission. And the souls of those who have passed away, think about this, think about that story. The souls of those who have passed away, they are hoping desperately that you will engage in the mission of God rather than be passive about it. They're hoping that you will be the one to go and speak to their loved ones. See, why does Peter bring up the people from the time of Noah specifically? I mean, lots of people have, you know, disobeyed God and stuff. Why bring up these people in particular? Here's why because what he really wants to talk about is the flood. In a way, this whole thing about preaching to those who. Those deceased souls is kind of an aside. What he really wants to talk about is the flood. Look at how he starts in verse 20. He starts halfway through the verse. He says, Eight people were saved through water in the time of the flood. And then he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Okay, so he's saying that the flood in the time of Noah is a picture of what baptism symbolizes. Now think about it, it makes sense. The the waters of the flood washed away sin and wickedness and they brought about a new world and a fresh start. So they washed away sin and wickedness and brought about a new world and a fresh start. Isn't that what baptism is? Isn't that what it symbolizes? How through Jesus, God has washed away our sins and brought about a fresh start before God? Some people also wonder if here Peter is teaching that baptism is what saves you, right? The act of baptism, the actual water being applied to your skin. And that's clearly not what he's saying. Look at, if you look at verse 21, you'll see that that's, that's not what he's saying, even in the context of this verse. Peter says, it's not the physical action of being baptized which accomplishes this. It's what he calls the appeal to God, In other words, it's what takes place inside your heart and inside your mind as you turn to God and receive his grace, and baptism is a picture of that. So salvation and becoming a Christian is an important step, but it's only the first step in this wonderful journey of this resurrected life. Let's talk about the next part of this. The resurrected life not only begins with salvation, but it requires death. Look at uh, chapter one, verse four says this. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of their life, uh, the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In, o- in order for resurrection to happen, there has to be a death, right? Without a death, there's no resurrection. And here's what's so interesting, though this death isn't just a one time thing. It's actually a continual, ongoing experience of putting to death, you know, you think about like squashing bugs, right? Like putting to death those things in our lives which would tear us down and poison our souls and not to mention other people around us. In Romans chapter six, Paul goes on, we read part of it earlier, he goes on to say this. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So, since uh, we have died with Christ, we are free from our old master, from sin and from the passions of our body and flesh. And now we're free to live for a new purpose. That purpose is to do the will of God. That's our new North Star. We ask ourselves the question what would God want me to do in this situation? So this week, you know, I was at the church office when we were having our youth Bible study, and, you know, I I overheard some of what they were talking about, and they were studying the Gospel of John, and particularly, they were looking at this passage in which Jesus raised this guy named Lazarus from the dead, and there's this part in that passage where after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says this interesting thing. He tells Lazarus to go and take off his grave clothes. Right, here's Lazarus, you know, looking like a mummy, I suppose, like on Halloween, right? He comes walking out and he's wearing these grave clothes. It makes sense to wear grave clothes if you're dead. But not if you're not dead, right? And so you're alive. So don't act like you're dead anymore, okay? You don't keep looking and acting like somebody who's dead. And for us, we have received new life in Christ. And here's what we need to do. We need to take off our grave clothes. We need to stop looking and acting like people who are dead because we're not anymore. Look, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul talks about this. He uses this metaphor of taking off and putting on. Like your clothing, right? Taking off and And putting on. And here's what he says take off these things. And he says, put to death, squash these bugs, right? The things in you like immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Squash those bugs, right? They're no longer having control over you. You don't need them multiplying in your life and taking over. Take those things off like Lazarus takes off his grave clothes since he's not dead anymore. And instead, put on other things. He says, put on as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's what Peter's saying here. The resurrected life requires death. Not just a one-time death, but a continual putting to death of the things which belong to the old way of life. And he says in verse 3, You've lived long enough doing these things, right? The things that pagans do. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. He says in verse four, stop, if, you, if you stop doing these things, you know what's gonna happen? People are gonna think you're weird. They're gonna think that you're prudish or that you, maybe you, you, you know, have your nose in the air because you're not doing the things that they used to do. But he says, hey, look, you're not living for their approval anyway, are you? Are you, right? Aren't you living now to please God and do his will? So put those things to death. And what will happen if you do? Well, that leads us to our third and final point, which is Peter tells us about the resurrected life leads to greater joy now and glory later. Joy now and glory later. Look how he kicks off verse seven. He says, the end of all things is at hand, right? The end is near, right? That's pretty intense, right? He's clearly trying to get our attention. The end is near. Look at in verse three. chapter four, he tells us about the things which correspond or relate to or are representative of the old life of spiritual death, those actions which relate to spiritual death. Now, he's going to give us a different list of actions which correspond to the new life that we have in Jesus, the resurrected life. And here's, here's what he wants us to do. He wants you to pursue these things, press into them as if your life depends on it. The end is near, so do these things like your life depends on it. And if you do, they will lead to joy now and glory later. So, what are these things? There are two of them. Number one is prayer. He says, "Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, because the end is near." So, we've been brought to God. He told us by the removal of our sins by Jesus' death and resurrection, so that now you can have a relationship with Him, and and therefore. If you receive this, then live it out, right? Connect with God in prayer like your life depends on it. See, in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul told us to pray without ceasing. And what that means is simply an ongoing conversation how many of you have like ongoing conversations with people that you text them throughout the day? Right? Like I have an ongoing conversation with my wife, Rosemary. We just text each other throughout the day. And because it's an ongoing conversation, right? There's never like a big sign-off. This is Nick signing off. Sincerely yours. I will talk to you tomorrow promptly at 7 a.m. for our you know scheduled time of 15 minutes of you know, time together. Goodbye for now, right? Like signing off. And that's not how we do it because I know that I'm going to talk to her again in like seven minutes. So we're encouraged to have this same kind of conversation with God, this ongoing conversation, the last thought before you go to sleep, the first thought before you awake, ongoing throughout the day. And if you do that, you know why you'll experience greater joy? Because so many of us are plagued by anxiety and worry. So many of you have struggles in your life, things that you're concerned about that are going on right now, or maybe you're worried about the future or what's gonna happen in a couple years. The fact is that worrying isn't gonna help that situation. Complaining isn't gonna make that any better. However, we can come to God, the the God of the universe, the one who actually can do something. You can bring him those needs, and he loves you. He treats you as a friend and as a child, and he will do what is best for you. The next thing that Peter encourages us to do, as if your life depends on it, as part of this new life, is Christian community. Christian community says in verse 8, above all, keep loving each other earnestly, earnestly. That means being intentional. It means being committed to each other. It means not giving up on each other. Here's why he says, because love covers a multitude of sins. See, Peter knows that even Christians are going to hurt each other. And when you get close to people, you're going to see their flaws. They're going to see your flaws. But don't give up on each other. Commit yourselves to each other, to other Christians. That's a vital part of the resurrected life. See, we really believe that here. That's why we always tell you all the time, maybe too much, we want everybody in our church to join a group. You know why? Because we want you to grow and we fully believe that you will not grow and become the person God wants you to be without committed Christian community, without people knowing you and encouraging you and praying for you. And that's what happens in groups. So he says this, he says, love covers over a multitude of sins. There's a time in speaking of Noah right in his life where he after the flood he got drunk and he passed out naked and one of his sons saw him drunk and naked and he went and told a bunch of people hey guys look dad's naked this is hilarious everybody come check it out look dad got drunk he passed out naked let's all look and, and he said, like, come on gather around guys but Noah's other two sons they said no we're not going to do that. And so, what they did is they took a blanket and they held it between them and they walked in backwards so as not even to look on Noah's nakedness and shame. And they covered up their father to protect his reputation, to protect his dignity. That's what this principle looks like in action. It means when you see someone else's vulnerabilities, their flaws, their sins. You don't tell other people about them. You don't gossip. You don't flaunt it and mock it and make other people see it and gloat over it. No, it means you want them to succeed. You want them to do good. You want to protect their relationship because you love them. or So you wanna protect their reputation because you love them. Now this can be abused, can't it? Like imagine an abusive husband telling his wife, hey, love covers over a multitude of sins, so don't call the cops on me. Right Now that's certainly not what we're talking about here. There are times when the loving thing to do is actually to expose someone's sin and let them face the music for what they've done. But what Peter's talking about here is in Christian community, it's a willingness to forgive others, to overlook offenses and flaws, to not just throw up your hands and give up on people when they don't meet your expectations or if they offend you. Notice what he says in verse 9. Show hospitality without grumbling. If you show hospitality, people will give you a reason to grumble, right? That's just the facts. In verse 10, he says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one speaking the words of God. Whoever serves, as one serving by the strength that God supplies. So Christian community is about serving. You know, here at Whitefields, we tell you, we want everybody to join a group, but we also want everybody to join a team. That's how we do things here. Join a group and join a team because we believe, really, that using your gifts and talents that God has given you is essential in order for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus, Look what it says in verse 10, that using the gifts that God has given you is stewardship, right? What's a steward? A steward is someone who has been entrusted with something that's not theirs. And they've been entrusted for it, with it, not just to enjoy it for their own purposes, but to use it for the master's purposes. Is this worth asking yourself, what has God given you? Has he given you a talent? Has he given you a home? Has he given you a truck, right? Has he given you a mind, How about free time? How about financial resources? What has God given you? And view yourself as a steward of those things. You've been entrusted with those things from God to use them for his purposes. So as you live out this resurrected life, what will happen is greater joy now and glory later. Throughout this letter, Peter's been reminding us that Jesus' sufferings were not in vain, that Jesus' sufferings resulted in glory. And the fact is that as the life of Jesus is in us, as we live out this resurrected life, his life in us, we get to experience that same dynamic as well. That's what Peter wants us to know, that just as his sufferings were not in vain, in Christ, your sufferings will not be in vain. And we're gonna talk about that more next week. But here's the truth. The good news is, Peter tells us, in verse 11, that the strength and the power to do these things, to put to death the old ways, to live in the new ways, is supplied by God He's the one who saves you. He's the one who comes into your life and supplies you with the strength to do what he calls you to do. It's his work from beginning to end. So what's your part? Your part is to step out in faith and in obedience. It's to say yes to him and then act, right? In faith and obedience. And when you do, he will meet you in that place with the strength that you need to do the thing he's calling you to do. So I wanna encourage you to do that this week. Step out in faith and obedience, put to death the old ways, and live out this resurrected life by the power that he supplies. Lord, we thank you for your power. We thank you, Lord, for the power that you supply. And thank you, Lord, for this new life that we get to live in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us as new people who've been made alive to take off our death clothes, Lord, to take off uh, the garments, uh, the grave clothes, the garments of death, and to put on the new life that we have in you. Lord, thank you that we're not on our own in this, that you're the one who supplies the power. So Lord, may we see ourselves as stewards of your grace. Lord, may we bless others as you've blessed us. Lord, would you empower us to do that this week by your life in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.